Chapter 26 The Heart of the Matter Knowing and Believing Christians are often called believers, while non-Christians are termed unbelievers. Scripture itself speaks this way. We read that believers were the more added to the Lord, Acts chapter 5 verse 14, and that they should not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14. There are obviously two classes of people distinguished by whether they believe or not. It can rightly be said that what separates Christians from non-Christians is the matter of faith. Christians believe certain things which non-Christians do not. Christians believe the claims of Christ and the teachings of the Bible to be true, but non-Christians disbelieve them. Christians have faith in Christ and trust His promises. Non-Christians do not believe in Him and doubt His word. It is quite natural, then, that the gospel can be called the word of faith. Romans chapter 10 verse 8. Becoming a Christian entails that you believe in your heart that God raised him, Christ, from the dead. Verse 9. Likewise, he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them who diligently seek him. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. Examples could be multiplied. What sets Christians apart from non-Christians is the matter of belief or faith. However, the difference between them is more than that in an important sense, and we need to understand this if we are going to do a faithful job in defending the faith. The Christian claims to believe the teachings of Scripture or to have faith in the person of Christ because the element of trust is so prominent in our relationship with the Savior. But the Christian actually claims more than simply to believe Christ's claims to be true. The Christian also affirms that he or she knows those claims to be true. What is involved in saving faith is more than hope, although that is present, and more than a commitment of will, although that too is present. Job confidently asserted, I know my Redeemer lives. Job chapter 19 verse 25. John indicated that he wrote his first epistle so that those who believe on the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life. 1 John chapter 5 verse 13. Paul declared that God has furnished proof that Jesus will judge the world. Acts chapter 17 verse 31. Jesus promised his disciples that they would know the truth and the truth shall set you free. John chapter 8 verse 32. In what way does knowledge go beyond belief? Knowledge includes having justification or good reason to support whatever it is you believe. Imagine that I believe there are 37 square miles in a particular city. And imagine also that it just so happens that this claim is accurate. But imagine as well that I simply got this answer by guessing, rather than doing measurements, mathematics, or checking an almanac, etc. I believe something which happened to be true, but we would not say that I had knowledge in this case because I had no justification for what I believed. When we claim to know that something is true, we are thereby claiming to have adequate evidence, proof, or good reason for it. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is not simply that one believes the Bible and the other does not. People's beliefs can be frivolous, random, or silly. The Christian also claims that there is justification for believing what the Bible says. The non-Christian says, to the contrary, that there is no justification or adequate justification for believing the Bible's claims, or, in stronger cases, says that there is justification for disbelieving the Bible's claims. Apologetics amounts to an inquiry into the debate over who is correct on this matter. 
It involves giving reasons, offering refutations, and answering objections. Conflicting Worldviews Whose perspective is intellectually justified, the Christians or the non-Christians? Many budding Christian apologists approach the answer to this question in a very simplistic and naive fashion, thinking that all we have to do is go look at the observable evidence and see whose hypothesis is verified. After all, it is thought, this is how we resolve disagreements in our ordinary affairs, as well as in science. If a dispute arises over the price of eggs at the store, we can jump in the car, drive down to the market, and go look for ourselves at the price listed on the eggs. If scientists disagree over the claim that smoking causes cancer, they can run tests, do statistical comparisons, etc. In such cases, it seems that what we do, at base, is look and see if one hypothesis or its opposite is true. Of course, disagreements such as these can be readily resolved in this fashion only because the two people who disagree nevertheless agree with each other regarding more basic assumptions, such as the reliability of their senses, the uniformity of natural events, the accuracy of data reporting, the honesty of researchers, etc. However, when the dispute is over more fundamental issues, as it is between believers and unbelievers, simple appeals to observational evidence need not be decisive at all. The reason is that a person's most fundamental beliefs or presuppositions determine what he or she will accept as evidence and determine how that evidence will be interpreted. Let me illustrate. Naturalism and supernaturalism are conflicting outlooks regarding the world in which we live and man's knowledge of it. The naturalist claims that what is studied by empirical science is all that there is to reality, and that every event can, in principle, be explained without resorting to forces outside the scope of man's experience or outside the universe. Christian supernaturalism, on the other hand, believes that there is a transcendent, all-powerful God who can intervene in the universe and perform miracles which cannot be explained by the ordinary principles of man's natural experience. Now then, having well-accredited reports of a miraculous event is not in itself sufficient to change the mind of the naturalist, and for good reason. The naturalist's presuppositions will require him to dispute the claim that such an event really occurred, or alternatively, will lead him to say that the event is subject to a natural explanation once we learn more about it. Simple evidence need not dislodge his naturalistic approach to all things any more than simple eyeball evidence could ever in itself refute the Hindu conviction that everything about man's temporal experience is maya, illusion. Our presuppositions about the nature of reality and knowledge will control what we accept as evidence and how we view it. Everybody has what can be called a worldview, a perspective in terms of which they see everything and understand their perceptions and feelings. A worldview is a network of related presuppositions in terms of which every aspect of man's knowledge and awareness is interpreted. This worldview, as explained above, is not completely derived from human experience, nor can it be verified or refuted by the procedures of natural science. Not everybody reflects explicitly upon the content of his worldview or is consistent in maintaining it, but everybody has one nonetheless. A person's worldview clues him as to the nature, structure, and origin of reality. It tells him what are the limits of possibility. 
It involves a view of the nature, sources, and limits of human knowledge. It includes fundamental convictions about right and wrong. One's worldview says something about who man is, his place in the universe, and the meaning of life, etc. Worldviews determine our acceptance and understanding of events in human experience, and thus they play the crucial role in our interpreting of evidence or in disputes over conflicting fundamental beliefs. We saw above that apologetics, in the nature of the case, involves argumentation over the justification of belief or rejection of belief. What we have just observed is that one's treatment of the issue of justification of belief will be governed by his underlying worldview or presuppositions. Effective apologetics necessarily leads us to challenge and debate the unbeliever at the level of his most basic commitments or assumptions about reality, knowledge, and ethics. Our approach to defending the faith is shallow and ineffective if we think that the unbeliever simply lacks information or needs to be given observational evidence. The Bible teaches us that the mental and spiritual perspectives of believers and unbelievers differ radically from each other. In principle, and according to what they profess, the basic worldviews, the fundamental presuppositions of the Christian and non-Christian conflict with each other at every point. The all-pervading sinful depravity of the unregenerate man touches his intellect as much as anything else. The mind of the sinful nature is at enmity with God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. Romans chapter 8 verse 7. Paul's description of the unbelieving mind in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 through 19 is graphic. Unbelievers walk in vanity of mind, with darkened understanding, ignorance, and a hardened heart. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Romans chapter 1 verse 22. On the other hand, believers are said to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. Romans chapter 12 verse 2, Ephesians chapter 4 verses 23 through 24. They now have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 16, and bring every thought captive to him, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5. It is not surprising, therefore, that believers and unbelievers, with their conflicting worldviews and heart conditions, do not really share a common view of knowledge, logic, evidence, language, or truth. Pilate arrogantly asked, What is truth? John chapter 18, verse 38. Agrippa differed with Paul over what is believable. Acts chapter 26, verse 8. What unbelievers call knowledge, believers shuns as pseudo-knowledge. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. What believers call wisdom, unbelievers call foolishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. The impossibility of the contrary. If the way in which people reason and interpret evidence is determined by their presupposed worldviews, and if the worldviews of the believer and unbeliever are in principle completely at odds with each other, how can the disagreement between them over the justification of biblical claims be resolved? It might seem that all rational argumentation is precluded since appeals to evidence and logic will be controlled by the respective, conflicting worldviews of the believer and unbeliever. However, this is not the case. Differing worldviews can be compared to each other in terms of the important philosophical question about the preconditions of intelligibility for such important assumptions as the universality of logical laws, the uniformity of nature, and the reality of moral absolutes. 
we can examine a worldview and ask whether its portrayal of nature, man, knowledge, etc., provide an outlook in terms of which logic, science, and ethics can make sense. It does not comport with the practices of natural science to believe that all events are random and unpredictable, for instance. It does not comport with the demand for honesty in scientific research, if no moral principle expresses anything but a personal preference or feeling. Moreover, if there are internal contradictions in a person's worldview, it does not provide the preconditions for making sense out of men's experience. For instance, if one's political dogmas respect the dignity of men to make their own choices, while one's psychological theories reject the free will of men, then there is an internal defect in that person's worldview. It is the Christian's contention that all non-Christian worldviews are beset with internal contradictions, as well as with beliefs which do not render logic, science, or ethics intelligible. On the other hand, the Christian worldview, taken from God's self-revelation in Scripture, demands our intellectual commitment because it does provide the preconditions of intelligibility for man's reasoning, experience, and dignity. In biblical terms, what the Christian apologist does is demonstrate to unbelievers that because of their rejection of God's revealed truth, they have become vain in their reasonings. Romans chapter 1 verse 21. By means of their foolish perspective, they end up opposing themselves. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 25. They follow a conception of knowledge which does not deserve the name. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 20. Their philosophy and presuppositions rob one of knowledge. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 and verse 8. Leaving them in ignorance. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 through 18. Acts chapter 17 verse 23. The aim of the apologist is to cast down their reasonings. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5. And to challenge them in the spirit of Paul. Where is the wise? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20. In various forms, the fundamental argument advanced by the Christian apologist is that the Christian worldview is true because of the impossibility of the contrary. When the perspective of God's revelation is rejected, then the unbeliever is left in foolish ignorance because his philosophy does not provide the preconditions of knowledge and meaningful experience. To put it another way, the proof that Christianity is true is that if it were not, we would not be able to prove anything. What the unbeliever needs is nothing less than a radical change of mind, repentance, Acts chapter 17, verse 30. He needs to change his fundamental worldview and submit to the revelation of God in order for any knowledge or experience to make sense. He at the same time needs to repent of his spiritual rebellion and sin against God. Because of the condition of his heart, he cannot see the truth or know God in a saving fashion. Self-deception until the sinner's heart is regenerated and his basic outlook changed, he will continue to resist the knowledge of God. As we just said, given his defective worldview and spiritual attitude, the unbeliever cannot justify any knowledge whatsoever and cannot come to know God in a saving fashion. This does not mean, however, that unbelievers do not have any knowledge, much less they do not know God. What we said is that they cannot justify what they know in terms of their unbelieving worldview, and they cannot know God in a saving way. The Bible indicates that unbelievers do, nevertheless, know God, but it is a knowledge in condemnation, 
a knowledge which enables them to know things about themselves and the world around them, even though they suppress the truth of God which makes such knowledge possible. According to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, unbelievers actually know God in their heart of hearts. Verse 21. Indeed, that which is known of God is evident within them, so that they are without excuse for their professed unbelief. Verses 19 through 20. Since he is not from any of us, even pagan philosophers cannot escape knowing him. Acts chapter 17, verses 27 through 28. What unbelievers do is suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. They are guilty of self-deception. Although in one sense they very sincerely deny knowing God or being persuaded by his revelation, they nevertheless are mistaken in this denial. In fact, they do know God. They are persuaded by his revelation of himself. And they now are doing whatever they can to keep the truth from sight and to keep from dealing honestly with their maker and judge. Rationalization and any number of intellectual games will be enlisted to convince themselves and others that God's revelation of himself is not to be believed. In this way, unbelievers, who genuinely know God in condemnation, work hard, even habitually, and in that sense, unconsciously, to deceive themselves into believing that they do not believe in God or the revealed truths about him. It is the knowledge of God which all unbelievers inescapably have within themselves that makes it possible for them to know other things about themselves or about the world. Because they know God, they have a rationale for the laws of logic, the uniformity of nature, man's dignity, and ethical absolutes. Accordingly, they can pursue science and other aspects of life with some measure of success, even though they cannot account for that success cannot provide the preconditions for the intelligibility of logic, science, or ethics. For this reason, every bit of the unbeliever's knowledge is an evidence supporting the truth of God's revelation and a further indictment against unbelief on the day of judgment. The task of apologetics is to strip the unbeliever of his mask, to show him that he has really known God all along, but suppress the truth unrighteously, and that knowledge would be impossible otherwise. Apologetics in this way goes to the heart of the matter. It challenges the heart of the unbeliever's philosophical outlook, and it confronts the self-deception which grips the unbeliever's personal heart.